Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning radio show and podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud. And Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Today, you get three co-hosts for the price of two. Someone suggested that we discuss a topic that's typically quite easy to understand, but we thought we'd do it anyway. You know, what topic you may ask? Well, adolescence. You know, the World Health Organization defines adolescence as those human beings who are 10 to 19 years old. And the word adolescence comes from a Latin word. Oh, there's a Catholic angle already, meaning grow to maturity. And what could possibly go wrong as young human beings mature? Actually, it's been my experience that it goes smoothly and perfectly almost every time. <laughs> but, um, nothing could go wrong. Yeah, it's a, it's a little frightening. I mean, we've talked about physicians and our education, and you think, gosh, I don't think I want that physician who's not quite ready yet, who's not through with their education and their learning. It would be tempting to say the same thing about adolescence. Just let me have them after they finish sort of this transition. <laughs> Yes, But I I think all of our listeners are probably laughing right now thinking, oh yeah, this is going to be good. They're going to tell me how terrible my teenagers are. And I hope we surprise you when we come up with much, much more than that. Well, and I I think that's exactly it. I mean, so often when I talk to folks with with teenage children, the question they're really asking, no matter what the, the subject material is, is, it looks like they're broken. Why are they not making sense in, in the way that, you know, as adults, you, you grow to see the world. Um, but Tom, Tom had a great analogy, um, uh, automobile analogy that I liked. Oh, and, and what, what the brain development, uh, and I, of course, I steal all the best material. And that is that in the teenage brain that would be a car, the accelerator develops before the brakes. The accelerator is called the limbic system or the emotion system. And, and we know adolescents have emotions that are strong, but the brakes, which is located in front of the brain, the prefrontal cortex, in fact, it's the face palm area. When you do a face palm and hit your forehead, it's really what's behind that that isn't there yet. That's a prefrontal cortex that helps you make decisions, exercise self-control, and is the brakes that is the adolescent car. So there are many topics we could talk about related to adolescent health. Uh, And in fact, we've got two shows scheduled up that we will be recording um, in the upcoming month on anxiety and depression, specifically with a child psychiatrist, Larry Mittenall from Wichita, Kansas. So we'll be talking about 10 and 19-year-olds and even a little younger than 10 and some of their mental health concerns. And another thing we'll be talking about is childhood and teen obesity which has become an epidemic in our country with a pediatric gastroenterologist, Dr. Katrina Wynn from the Chicago area. Uh, But we're going to talk about some other things that are fun. And and to lead off, you know, we just want to talk a little bit about, remember, teenage brains are different than adult brains. They're not just little adults. Uh, Would you you agree, Chris? You've had teenagers in the house. Andrew's not quite there yet. Uh But Andrew has the privilege of... (laughs) Uh, in his medical practice of taking care of a lot of teenagers. So we should all sort of pause and thank him for that. Um, yes. <laughs> yeah. As a, as a father of teenagers, I think it's fair to say that their bodies develop much faster than their brains do. Uh, and I think for those of you that have teenagers, you listeners realize this, um, you've seen them. They can, in one instant, they can sound like a college professor. And in the very next instant, they can sound like a child. And they're both correct. They're very, very smart at times, and they're very, very underdeveloped at times. And if anything characterizes, in my mind, the adolescent period, it's how quickly they can waffle between those two extremes. Right. I want to be an adult. I want to be a child. Please take care of me, mom and dad. I'm on my own, mom and dad. And they can't make up. <laughs> and it's like one of my uh, daughters likes using the, the noun adult as a verb. Oh, I'm adulting now. I, I think I'm doing a good job adulting today. Or I'm not adulting today. Um, I don't know if any of you parents have experienced that, but it sounds like it's a normal thing that teens go through. Well, and if you think about it too, starting with that as kind of the, the premise that you're not dealing with an adult, you're dealing with something other. If, if you keep that in the, the front of your mind, things are going to make more sense. I think teens uh, cause angst and frustration a lot of times when we expect them to behave in a way 
that's different. If we kind of recognize what we're dealing with, um, you know, this is varsity level parenting. I mean, <laughs> I've, uh, I, I can change diapers in my sleep. Uh, I can get the older kids to change younger kids' diapers. I've got that down. But when you're dealing with a teenager, this is the, the varsity squad. And so it's time to level up. <laughs> and with that, we'll lead into our, our straightforward trivia question of the day. According to the United Nation Children's Fund, how many adolescents, that is defined as those between 10 and 19 years of age, are there in the entire world? And what percent of the world population do they comprise? And I'm sure some days it feels like they're all in Andrew's office, but they're not. We'll be back with the answer after the uh, last part of the uh, wisdom that we share on adolescent medical problems toward the end of the show. Stay with us. We'll be back soon. And we're back with Dr. Doctor talking about adolescence and all the mysteries thereof. Um, so when, when we're thinking about adolescence, one of the, the biggest things that people like to talk about are hormones and changes that happen to people. That's a relatively easy talk for most parents. <laughs> um, and so for Chris to give us some fine points, I, I wanted to pivot to the gynecologist. And Chris, how, how, would, how would you attack hormones? Yeah, I'd run quickly in the other direction. <laughs> I, think that would be, no. I mean, you know, it's a fascinating thing. I mean, puberty and boys and girls represents literally an awakening, right? So a part of their physiology that has been dormant is suddenly now awakening. And it's, it's fascinating to watch, not necessarily fascinating to go through as an individual, um, but the person going through it has nothing to compare it to, so it's not necessarily terrible to them. Uh, but it does represent an awakening of this endocrinology axis that we call, and the pituitary gland and the thyroid gland and the ovaries in girls and the testes in boys, and, and they start doing all of the things that they were designed to do. Um, and it isn't necessarily a smooth transition, and it isn't necessarily linear. Sometimes it goes really fast. Sometimes it goes very slowly. Sometimes it starts on the very young end. Sometimes it starts a little bit later. So um, it's not a one size fits all, but it quite literally is an awakening. So kind of by definition, puberty is the change from being unable to father or mother a child to being able to father or mother a child. Um, is that correct? Yeah, it's a good it's a good definition. And in, in, in girls, which it's more uh, interesting generally than in boys, but in girls, you know, their pituitary gland wakes up, they start releasing the hormones that stimulate the ovaries, and that makes follicles awaken that have been dormant, and the follicles start making estrogen, and the estrogen has all its effects on the body. Um, they make a little bit of testosterone as well. And then, of course, in boys, the same axis awakens, but it awakens their testes and they start making tremendous amounts of testosterone, uh, which affects every aspect uh, of their physiology. Um, so really nothing in the body goes untouched or unchanged by these, you know, by the onset of these new hormones, the arrival. And what are some of the ways they affect different parts of the body, Chris? those we would normally think about and those we might not think about so much? Yeah, well, I think it, it affects the brain and we wouldn't necessarily think about that. So it does affect behavior and the brain. Um, but, you know, the first thing that happens typically is the, the arrival or the, um, you know, the showing up of pubic hair and hair under the arms, sometimes in boys, especially hair on the face, uh, hair on the legs. Um, and then in girls, uh, the breasts begin to develop. So parents will notice breast buds, as they're called, and they'll, they'll see that happening. Um, often, you know, the pubic hair is the last thing they see because the kids often hide that and don't want that to be known. Uh, but underarm hair, facial hair in boys, pubic hair, uh, breast development in girls, uh, and then breast enlargement, and then testicular or testes enlargement in boys. And then in both girls and boys, often growth spurts. And so tremendous growth spurts in some cases uh, are the things that parents are going to see first. You know, Chris, one of the things I get asked a lot, and I'm sure you probably do even more than I do, is, is my child normal? Uh, did this start too early or shouldn't it have started now? Um, what's going on? Can, can you give some kind of like out of bounds lines for what normal might be? 
Yeah, only for girls, because I have to look to you on the boy topic. But, um, you know, for girls, you're, they should be menstruating by age 16. So they, they should have a menstrual period by then. If they're not menstruating by 16, it doesn't necessarily mean there's something wrong, but it, it does warrant some investigation. And usually that investigation is simple. It's just drawing a couple of blood tests to look at hormone levels. Um, so when they develop pubic hair, when their breasts begin to develop, doesn't matter as much as are they menstruating by 16. And then a lot of people have probably heard in the popular press, um, the age of puberty in girls uh, is younger than it used to be. And there's all sorts of theories as to why that is. Uh, there's some genetics to that. Uh, people hypothesize there's hormones in the water supply and things of this nature. I, I think the, the truth is we're not, we don't really know. But it yeah. is earlier. It is earlier. And uh, I, for example, I have two African children. Uh, African girls uh, develop much earlier than non-African girls do. Um, my kids were in orphanages and had malnutrition when they were younger. That causes an earlier onset uh, of menses in, uh, in adolescence than in the opposite. So there's a lot of variables. There's genetics. There's environment. Um, there's a lot of variation. Yeah, I think that's the the one takeaway that I always encourage folks to think about is that there is so much variation. So when you're trying to compare them to a sibling or the neighbor kid or their cousin, uh, a lot of times it's not necessarily a problem. Um, boys, like you said, a lot simpler than girls, a lot less interesting in many ways. The, the money time is kind of around 12 years old, but that's a wide range too, uh, earlier and later. And usually boys don't have as much investigation, even if things seem to be going slower or quicker, there's less investigation than girls because there's less kind of signs and symptoms that we wonder and worry about like the, the ladies' menses. Yeah, great point. I, I think another point for parents to, to keep in mind is their brains and their bodies, as we referenced earlier, are not developing in the same time necessarily. So just because a boy or a girl suddenly looks very physically mature, that doesn't mean emotionally they're any different than they were six months earlier. So, you know, don't be lulled into thinking that you're dealing with an adult in a girl's case, just because she has large breasts. Um, she still may be a very little girl inside. Uh, and that in itself can create all sorts of social pressure problems, particularly with her peers, if she's developing faster than they are. Uh, and astute parents have to be keenly aware of some of um, some of the problems or the potential problems that, that that can create. Chris and Andrew, do we know if girls have always developed earlier than boys throughout history, or is this a relatively recent onset thing? I, I don't know for sure, but as, as long as they've been making medical textbooks, I think they have, which we're, really I think we've only got great data on that probably the last 150, 200 years. It seems like most of our medical knowledge is, is based on that. I mean, I remember, you know, junior high, it was always interesting. These girls are starting to look like women and the boys are still mostly looking like boys. <laughs> it, is it is fascinating how it works. Well, what are the, what's the hardest part for a girl about puberty from your experience in OBGYN, Chris? You know, I think everybody, everybody would probably say menstruation, you know, because particularly for uh, men, we think, well, that must just be awful. That's probably the worst part for uh, an adolescent girl to go through. I think when you talk to a lot of women, they would say it wasn't the menstruation. It was the crazy combination of I'm a woman, I'm a girl, I look different than my friend. Why is the boy that was my friend last month suddenly not talking to me anymore? Um, there's this just this crazy misconnect between body and brain uh, and heart that can be very, very frustrating. Uh, I think actual menstruation, depending on how it's presented by the parents, and I think that's a worthy topic in itself, uh, but the actual menses doesn't have to be the most challenging part. Those other things, they're challenging, and I don't think there's any way around that challenge. So why don't you go with some good advice on how to present menstruation at home? Well, I mean, this is complete and total opinion. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> Which we come to expect from you, Chris. <laughs> yes. I, I make my living talking to women and, and their daughters. 
uh, married he's one. He's eating well, and, so he must be talking. That's right. <laughs> I married one and I fathered two. So, um, yeah, I think presenting, you know, the onset of puberty, but particularly menstruation, it ought to be celebrated. It shouldn't be joked about. It shouldn't be uh, made fun of. It shouldn't be shunned. It should be celebrated. I mean, it's a, it's a monumental step and it represents the girl becoming a woman. And, you know, a lot of people smarter than I have talked about celebrating that, buying my first period dress and going out to a big fancy dinner with your family and maybe getting a ring or a piece of jewelry, but something to mark the fact that this is a young woman. Yesterday, she was a girl. Today, she's a young woman. And you're expressing what it is that makes you so different from everybody else, that God's given you this ability to bear children. And now there's this outward sign of your womanhood. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that just incredible? Your brothers, they must be so jealous uh, because, because they're never going to know this feeling. Uh, but it really should be celebrated because it's worthy of celebration. It's fascinating stuff. Um, but don't make them feel or let them even for a moment sort of think, oh, gosh, it's my period. Now, that's to be celebrated. And Andrew, you know, what do we do for boys? Is there something to celebrate? <laughs> you know, the girls have such a nice crisp day the period starts that you can go out to dinner. Uh, guys don't usually have a day like that that they might remember. I know uh, many, many women kind of remember when their first period started. There's frequently a story associated with that. I, I think the thing that I'm hearing from Chris, though, and, and it ties into what I would say most parents have the hardest time with is, is having some version of the talk with their kids. And that's a question that I get from parents routinely. Uh, I've, I've had some parents uh, schedule appointments for me to give the talk to their kids. Um, and that's uncomfortable for me because- I hope you, uh, I hope you charge a great deal of money for that. Well, <laughs> it, it's hard to book that. You know what I mean? How, how long is that going to take? And, and the thing that I usually encourage folks, um, one, I would say that it, it's usually more than one talk. You know, and I would say, two, you've got to get ahead of the culture. Unfortunately, the culture we live in right now is leading with, you know, things that are objectively not true, um, whether it would be perversions of puberty, um, perversions of sexuality of, of many types. But you have to really get out in front of that. Uh, maybe an analogy would be it's hard to have a talk with a girl about her first period after she's already started. It'd be a lot easier to give her a heads up about what at some point is going to be coming and is good and normal in the way God created it. So I usually encourage people to, to start before they need to and also to, to have multiple talks. But, you know, one, one of the things I, I read in JAMA last year, I think, and it really struck me was after the age of four years old, um, if you take all comers, kids look to their peers before they look to their parents as far as influences. And so if, if you think about that, that's really sobering. Uh, I definitely read that and I said, okay, I, I hope I can extend that for my kids in whatever way. And then two, if you don't tell them how to think about growing up and the changes their bodies go through, how to interact with the opposite sex, somebody else is telling them, whether implicitly or explicitly. So if anything, you know, everybody do it differently. But I'd say, if you're thinking maybe we should do it, you probably are already late. So I would, I would be encouraging you to move forward with multiple talks, not just necessarily one. Yeah, I think that's a great point, Andrew. It's not, it's not the talk. There is no the talk. Um, it's presenting information in an age-appropriate, um, intellectually appropriate stage their whole lives that's that's called parenting um and what's appropriate for a four-year-old uh doesn't work for a 12-year-old but they both they need information both of them do and that's our job as parents we've got to present that objective truth because to your point they're, they're not going to get truth and we've had guests on the show uh in episodes past i think i remember the statistic something like 80 percent of sixth grade boys had seen pornography so seventh grade is not the time to be talking about that. Um, we've got to be talking about that a lot sooner and talking about perversions of the process. Here's an idea, listeners. Hope I don't get sued. Cancel Netflix. 
right? Uh, we, <laughs> we, we don't need we don't need perversions of what is good and holy and honest being put in front of our children. And I've also noticed that you know the same sex children at the same age might not be ready for the same level of information. Yeah. So sometimes uh, you know they'll ask questions and it's not answering more of the question than they're ready to hear the answer to. Because I've noticed that sometimes somebody wants a lot of information and another one doesn't. So you're right. It's multiple talks at multiple times. I think those of us who homeschool, you know, we are still living in a little bit of a bubble and our kids are being exposed at later ages to some of these things. So we also don't want to rush it because we can also do harm by rushing it. Hmm. So what final advice would you have for parents on their kids going through puberty? You know, what I would say is uh, a couple of things. One, be patient. Uh, it, it is a journey. It's a process. And it does require some patience. But probably at least equally, if not important, more important than that, is what you say to your adolescent. And that is your changes to adulthood are not an excuse and will not be accepted as an excuse for bad behavior. So just because you're growing and changing and it's a confusing process, doesn't suddenly mean that you don't have to have respect for me and for the people you share this house with. Um, and, and that's an important message, I think, that too often that doesn't get delivered. And that's where we start seeing kids making some bad decisions and going the wrong way. Uh, they need more structure and more parenting when they're going through this horribly confusing time. And now we're going to pivot to something almost completely different, vaccines. And, you know, we've talked about COVID vaccines. We've talked about uh, infant and young childhood vaccines. But there are also vaccines associated with adolescents, aren't there, Andrew? That's right. And that's uh, something that we deal with a lot in family medicine. You know, we always encourage folks to go in once a year for a wellness exam. But especially as, as kids are growing up in the adolescent years are very important uh, vaccination's a big part of that, you know, and we've had shows that are dedicated explicitly to vaccines, and I'd point listeners there, but we wanted to touch at least momentarily on those that people would get through the teenage years. And so, so what are those? The, the first one that I'd mention would be the Tdap, the tetanus, diphtheria, and acellular pertussis booster. Um, this would be uh, one shot that kids usually get somewhere between 10 and 12 years old, they would have had the little kid version of this at kindergarten and before two years old several times. And so this, this is the next booster because that vaccine in particular does not give lifelong immunity. We know that pertussis uh, immunity basically starts wearing away as soon as you get the shot and it's almost nothing after five years. Uh, tetanus is on more of a 10 year range, but five years with an injury. So that would be one that kids usually get at 10 to 12. Another uh, couple vaccines would be related to meningitis, meningococcal vaccines. And the common one that's on the standard recommendations is the MCV4 uh, meningococcal conjugate vaccine. And kids would get two doses of this, one at 11 years old and one at 16 years old. That's on the standard schedule and it's required by a lot of school systems. And then there's another type of meningococcal vaccine that's kind of newer, it's called the MenB vaccine. And this is a two-dose series that's not technically on the required um, vaccine list, uh, but it is becoming more and more required. And I know at least in our state of Indiana where we record, many of the colleges are requiring it before kids can go to college. And so these both protect against an infection of the brain that comes from you know, coughing or kissing or living in close quarters with other people. And so the people who get this the most are college students who live in dorms, and then actually military recruits, people who live in confined spaces. So that's those are the two meningococcal vaccines. There's the HPV vaccine, which also comes up. It's a two to three dose series that kids can get after the age of nine. Uh, it's three doses if you start it when they're older. And, and HPV this, for our listeners stands for? Human papilloma virus. Um, not as exciting as it sounds, actually. Warts. Uh, just worse. <laughs> yes, it's, it's pretty foul. And actually, you know, most people think of HPV as the cause of cervical cancer and the main reason that we get pap smears as adult women. Um, however, it causes a lot of other stuff, a lot of oral 
and uh, anal cancers as well in both men and women. So now this is a shot that's recommended for kids older than nine. Um, I, I would mention that uh, a lot of people are kind of cynical about this one in particular. And, and I think to some degree, rightly so, because uh, you could go through your whole life and never be exposed to HPV. It is something that's uh, obtained through transmission of bodily fluids and close contact with other people with HPV. So, you know, a lot of folks have told me if their kid's living a chase life, as they're, as they're expected to, they're never going to run into it. And that is true. However, we do know that statistically, most people are exposed to HPV um, throughout their life, and many people have it on a long-term basis. So there's definitely a place to talk about this vaccine with your doctors. Just thinking practically for parents, Andrew, because I'm usually talking to parents of young girls, Yes, you're under the assumption that she's going to live such that she's never exposed, but she may fall madly in love and marry a man who perhaps had a little bit of a you know, crooked past uh, before he was walking the straight and narrow. This happens. Um, and so through no fault of her own, uh, she could be exposed to HPV later on in life when she is married. Uh, and the HPV vaccine could have prevented maybe pap smear abnormalities and other problems. So uh, it really isn't all about her. It's about what she could be exposed to later on in life. And to clarify, there's over 200 strains of human papillomavirus that cause warts on many parts of the body. This vaccine is particularly for those strains that cause most of the warts on the, the private areas, the genital area of our body. Isn't that correct, and, and Andrew? Not, and when we say warts, we tend to think of a cosmetic problem. But, you know, when we say wart and HPV, we mean the pap smear abnormalities that can turn into cancer or cancer of the right. throat and larynx and vocal cords. Um, not just a wart that you get on your finger that's unsightly. Correct. Yeah. So that that's definitely one that we want to consider in adolescence. And then the last one that uh, we wanted to mention was the flu vaccine. That's an annual one. And it, it doesn't work as well as everything else, but for getting it subsequent years, it actually works better. And so I get the flu vaccine, so do the Malali kids, and I think it's a good thing to do every year. And with that, we've reached the halfway point of this show, but we'll be back with more adolescent health concerns here on Dr. Doctor from the virtual studios of Redeemer Radio after the break. Abortion. Pornography. Embryonic stem cell research. Corporate contributions to Planned Parenthood. Do you invest in companies that are engaged in these practices? The Ave Maria Mutual Funds do not. And their investment portfolios reflect that. Ave Maria Mutual Funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors can invest in the no-load Ave Maria Mutual Funds. You can learn more about the Ave Maria Mutual Funds today at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com. Welcome back to Dr. Doctor, a special episode that has all three of your co-hosts. And we're talking about important topics. Since we covered all of those, we thought we'd move to dermatology. <laughs> You're so kind. <laughs> we couldn't talk about uh, adolescence and adolescent medicine without talking about probably the bane of adolescence, and that is acne. So, Tom, I think a question that a lot of people have is, why are so many adolescents tortured with acne? It's those darn hormones. I think you're responsible for those, right? You're the, you're the gynecologist, at least in girls, you're responsible. No, uh, it is because of the hormones that we associate with being a male. But as you have mentioned before, even females make testosterone or a group of hormones called androgens. And they do something to oil glands. And the oil glands in your skin are actually active shortly after birth because mom has hormones circulating and sharing in the baby's blood that cause those oil glands to be oily. But after three to six months after birth, they kind of dry up and those oil glands are inactive until the hormones of puberty. And so if you think about it, and we'll just you know think of the face, the upper back, uh, the upper chest, there's an oil gland around every hair follicle. So if you think of a pore, a pore is a little tube that a hair grows through. And around every pore, there is a ring of oil glands or sebaceous glands. And those male hormones, those the testosterone, those androgens stimulate the formation of oil. And the oil leads to the lining cells, which are dying and sloughing off every day because that's what makes most of dust, dead skin cells. Well, that oil is making those 
dead skin cells sticky and they form a plug in that pore. And then building up behind that pore, there are bacteria. Cutibacterium acnes is the name of this bacteria. And guess what? It eats the oil and it breaks down the oil to really irritating chemicals that then lead to inflammation, redness, swelling, pimples, um, red bumps, cysts. Uh, and so this is a whole acne cascade. So you've got, you got increased oil, you've got plug pores, you've got bacteria, and you've got inflammation. Wow. How, how do we fix it, Tom? How do we fix that cascade? Uh, that's a, an excellent question. And it's actually with medicines that can attack those. Now, before we get to medicines, people will ask questions. Well, does diet make a difference? And we've been gathering data on this for decades. And the answer seems to be yes, diet makes a difference. If you take a child, an adolescent in Southeast Asia, they don't have much acne. If you take a child from Southeast Asia, move them to the United States, and they keep eating their same diet that they ate in Asia, they don't get much acne. But if they move to the United States and start getting an American diet, they start getting acne. Hmm. So the latest evidence uh, is, is pretty good that a low glycemic index diet is less likely to cause acne. That is complex carbohydrates, good Simple sugars, bad, more acne, which parents have thought about for, for decades. Uh, the other thing is milk. Milk contains a number of hormones and a number of proteins which can stimulate the release of insulin, the, the buildup of fat, uh, the production of more male-type hormones, and the production of more sebum uh, and more acne. So all forms of milk uh, in adolescence seem to be related to increased amounts of acne. So it's not too much perhaps to try to reduce milk consumption and to eat a healthier diet with less sugar uh, before you treat it. But treatment then, you know, simply, okay, you want uh, the, to unplug the pores. That's what the medicines uh, called, you know, Retin-A is a brand name, Differin Gel, Tazerac. Those are the three main brand names. Those unplug the pore. Great thing to use once a day at night. Killing the bacteria, nothing does it better than over-the-counter benzoyl peroxide. So you can treat acne wonderfully over-the-counter with two products, uh, adapalene gel, the brand name Differin, and benzoyl peroxide. You use those two things once a day for three months, and the vast majority of acne is going to be 50 to 75% better. Hmm. Wow. Oftentimes, antibiotics are used by mouth, and they're specifically antibiotics that are used not because they're great at killing the bacteria, because the benzoyl peroxide kills the bacteria and acne better than any antibiotic by mouth. They're given because they're also anti-inflammatory. So they're usually the tetracycline class of antibiotics. And how, how long can people be on those antibiotics for acne? You know, that's a great question because dermatologists are the worst at prescribing antibiotics more than necessary. We prescribe more antibiotics per capita physician than any other specialty. And there's actually a big move to reduce how much, uh, how long they're prescribed. So typically it said, use them for three months for their anti-inflammatory capabilities. And they've actually been making low dose antibiotics that still are anti-inflammatory, but it's too low a dose to kill the bacteria. Then you don't worry about getting the uh, resistance to some bacteria of these antibiotics. So that's a good thing. Uh, but they've done studies where if they have people on these topical medicines as well as the oral antibiotics for three months versus other groups on them for six months, you don't see any more improvement usually after three months if you stop it versus continuing the oral antibiotics. So when I was doing a lot of acne, I wouldn't use it usually for more than, than three months because if they use the topicals, it really keeps it under control for the vast majority of people. But, but Tom, in fairness, you make it sound like it's pretty straightforward, yet, you know, all we have to do is go in public, uh, well, in the pre-mask days, and yes. we, would, we would see teenagers, it seems boys maybe more commonly than girls, that are clearly tortured with acne. Are they just don't have access maybe to these things that you're talking about? Is there a lack of knowledge? Or is there a subset of people that have a different kind of acne and they're going to struggle more? It's all of the above. Yeah. So there are some people who just, their, their parents or those boys just don't want to seek care. 
Mm. Uh, and there are other ones who just have uh, heredity. That means they're going to have worse acne. And so mm. for the really horrible acne, especially in boys, there's a medicine called isotretinoin, which uh, the longer it's been used in boys, uh, it, it seems to not have the side effects we thought it had. You know, potential relationship depression, probably not real. Uh, potential relationship with inflammatory bowel disease or irritable bowel disease, I should say, possible but very low risk. Relationship with uh, problems with uh, triglycerides or cholesterol in the blood, uh, very uncommon. Liver problems, very uncommon and can make a permanent change in the boy's life. The problem comes in, and this is, you know, part of the Catholic viewpoint, is the makers, the original maker of this drug, Accutane, stopped making it because of all the lawsuits. Because if a, a young woman gets pregnant while taking this medicine, there's a 25 to 50% chance of horrible birth defects. So now the FDA requires that a woman is using um, two forms of contraception if she's taking isotretinoin, which of course we can't, uh, we can't support that, although they do allow an out for women who are willing to um, abstain and say they are going to. I got to the point where I felt uncomfortable giving it to any woman because you know how easy it is, you know, in a moment to do something you said you weren't going to do. And that's when I discovered what is practically a home run or at least a ground rule double for almost all women with acne. Do you know What's what that, that drug is? You no. tell me, Tom. Spironolactone. Ah, uh, yes. What can you tell our listeners about spironolactone, Chris? Well, it's hard to say. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I usually call it aldactone because that comes out easier. That's a brand name, correct. Yeah, but, but, you know, I do use that a lot in gynecology. We often use it for women who have unwanted male pattern hair. Yes. Or hirsutism, as we say. Yes. Because it's said to low their free testosterone levels. It's Correct. actually, I believe, a, a, originally a blood pressure medicine. Correct. Um, that's not used for that any longer. Uh, generally not used for that. But it will lower free testosterone. At least I can say that in women. And often their unwanted hair growth gets better. And then they'll often say, oh, by the way, <laughs> my acne's better too. Thank you. Uh, yeah. It, that it, wasn't what I was trying to do. It prevents treat. the conversion of testosterone to the active dihydrotestosterone in the hair follicles, in the oil glands that are attached to the hair follicles. So I tell women or girls, I can reduce the oiliness of your skin, give you better acne, reduce unwanted hair growth, and sometimes even thicken the hair growth on top of their head with this one drug, which has very few side effects. I started using this drug in 1997. I had a 42-year-old colonel nurse in the army, woman who had been on multiple courses of isotretinoin. Acne kept coming back. I did some research and I said, let's try this. Three months later, I get a bear hug unawares from behind from this colonel nurse who says, this is the first time my face has been clear in decades. <laughs> and after that, I became an avid believer in this medication. So for girls and women with acne, spironolactone doesn't have any of the moral baggage that isotretinoin uh, has surrounding it, has um less side effects associated with it. Isotretinoin, you get really dry lips, dry skin can be uncomfortable, among other things. Yeah. Andrew, do you get requests from particularly young girls um, and college age girls that want birth control pills because of the acne property? Because birth control pills also lower uh, the free testosterone and there used to be called an acne pill. Yeah. Um, it was orthotricycline that was actually FDA approved, still is, for the treatment of acne. But do you see people asking for that? I, I do. And it seems a little bit historical to me, uh, almost like, how, how did you hear about our office? <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, traditionally, there's this, this unholy alliance uh, between the OB and the, the parents who don't want to put in the time and the daughter that says, if we can just get her on birth control, we're all going to be happier. And acne is a convenient excuse. Um, the, un, unfortunately, with in my mind, it doesn't seem when you have things like spironolactone, it doesn't seem like birth control is a reasonable option. Mm -hmm. Tom, is there a role for birth control in acne anymore? I don't think so. Uh, in fact, when I uh, I once uh, was a uh, anonymous reviewer of a review article on oral 
contraceptives for acne. I don't know how I got picked for it, but I just tore it apart because I showed that the benefit that these studies were shown for acne was so small compared to placebo. I mean, incredibly small benefit and the list of side effects were far more than any other drug I could give for that condition. So even if I thought there were no other problems with it as a medication, it, it's not one that I would want to prescribe to somebody. So these other things do so much better with so many less side effects. And that's the beauty. So if I've got a, a, a boy or a young man with bad acne, isotretinoin, because I can't give him spironolactone, it'll feminize him. And then for a young woman or girl with acne, then uh, aldactone, spironolactone, it works great. So it was really easy for me. I only had two women in my whole career that did not get substantially better with spironolactone. And, they, and one was anorexic and the other one was a marathon runner. And what do they have in common? Almost no body fat. And with that, there is nothing you can do to help their acne. But, but otherwise, it, it, it's a great thing. But it's also good to know that most people, if they are patient, can treat their acne over the counter just using benzoyl peroxide and adapalene gel. And if you get a little bit dry, use a nice lotion first after you wash your face lightly, something uh, CeraVe lotion, C-E-R-A-V-E, or Neutrogena. They, they both make really nice lotions um, for people with acne. So, Tom, for our, our parents of adolescents, do a little myth-busting. Um, what, what are the common misconceptions and myths about adolescent acne? Oh, that the sun will make it better. Uh, the, the sun just makes your whole face red, so you don't see all the red bumps you have on your face. <laughs> That's um, a radical treatment. Uh, if all you have with your acne is whiteheads, then the only medicine that's going to help would be uh, the retinoids like Retin-A, Tazerac, or the Differin, which is Adapalene gel. The other medicines won't make a difference. Uh, there's also something you can buy at drugstores called a Comedo Expressor. That's spelled C-O-M-E-D-O. Comedo is the medical word for a blackhead or a whitehead. Uh, plural are comedonies. And those are things to express them. So yes, it is okay to pop those uh, because those are not inflammatory. Those are not the red bumps or pimples. Tom, what, tell me about these lasers and things like that you'd see advertised. Does that stuff work? Some of the lasers target the blood vessels. So the little tiny blood vessels, they will superheat and destroy. And if you destroy the blood vessels that are feeding the inflammation, the swelling and redness. It will reduce the redness associated with the acne. The problem is the benefit is small and the cost is high and they're not there yet. Very simply. I wouldn't spend money on it at this point. Well, that's very good. Tom, what do you have to say to the listeners about acne before we move on to another topic? Uh, there is hope for it. It's really not that hard to take care of. And just about any dermatologist will be able to treat it and gain you great uh, benefit. But remember, be patient. I told all my patients, I don't want to switch or change anything unless there's a, a, a horrible side effect for three months. You've got to give any treatment three months because I've seen doctors say, oh, you're not better in a month. I'm going to switch you. Don't do that. You're not supposed to be better than a in a month. That's the main thing. Patients are called patient patients because they're supposed to be patient. That's good. And now let's move on to another topic related to adolescence. And Andrew, you get a ton of questions about this, the use of technology and electronic screens. What yeah. do they ask you? What do parents ask you? Um, how much is too much? Is, is this too much? Is, is that too little? It's educational. Um, aren't <laughs> they old enough? All their friends do. Uh, what about e-learning? I hate that. You know, those types Great. of questions. You just ask the questions. Why don't you answer them? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this technology, you know, I, I think, I think it's going to be a big part of my practice. Um, just dealing with technology, I would say, and the after effects, the unintended effects. Um, I'm, I'm somebody who, who does not necessarily see all the benefits on a daily basis. Most of the people who come and talk to me are seeing negative side effects of technology. And so, Kind of before we before we got started, I was looking up some statistics about technology use in adolescence, and um, it's it's been fairly stable up until the pandemic. Uh, and they found that outside of school, outside of homework and school education, um, eight to twelve year olds 
averaged about four hours and 44 minutes a day for recreational technology use, screen times, computers, TVs, phones, tablets, iPads, et cetera. Get into the teenage years, and that is seven and a half hours a day outside of school. And um, now you can imagine in 2020, when, when you have so many things canceled, not being able to go out, that's gone up. And I've, I've seen numbers saying over nine hours a day for recreational technology use for teens. And so, you know, always trying to seek balance, that would seem imbalanced to me. And we see a lot of negative side, side effects. You know, one of the things that we addressed in a previous show I'd point listeners to was the correlation between anxiety and depression and technology use. Mm. And some of that data that I was reviewing, uh, Jam, I had a great article last year about a linear increase in depression in teenagers with every additional hour of technology use a day, depression goes up like 60%. So the the kids who spend an extra hour a day are going to be 60% more likely to be depressed than people who spend less. Um, There's also longitudinal studies that have shown even with the advent of the smartphones and the tablets over the years, every year, the number of adolescents claiming to have depression and anxiety or suffering from that goes up every single year. And so currently the most recent statistics I've I've found say that about 15% of adolescents currently have depression. Um, At least 20% are going to have some type of depression before they reach adulthood. We know suicide is a big problem in the teenage group. And at least in America, about every hour and a half, there's a teenager that commits suicide. So that's a, obviously a huge problem, but I would tie it very closely to technology because only about 30%, definitely less than half of teenagers who are depressed actually seek out treatment. So technology is something my, my main point I give to, to parents is that, you know, we know that more of it is bad. We don't have a good idea of how much of it is safe. And so I, I would make an analogy to like cigarettes, you know, how, how many people ask me how many cigarettes are safe. And uh, <laughs> the answer is zero, zero is safe, you know. Um, but now, you're not saying that zero screen time is what we should. Precisely, precisely. We, we, we obviously wouldn't say that. And there's a lot of benefits from technology. But, you know, I've, I've heard arguments before, especially from school systems that, oh, we got to make sure kids know how to use a computer when they finish high school. Um, I've never seen that be a problem for anybody. You know, my three-year-olds flipping through my phone uh, and they're finding stuff I can't find. <laughs> so so in, in 60 to 90 seconds, what advice do you have for parents about technology use for their teens? I would say less is better. Um, they're going to necessarily have to have some for school. I would keep recreational technology at a minimum. Um individual screen time, whether it's watching TV or playing on the computer or having a phone, I wouldn't let my kids have a phone until they're out of the house. If it was me, maybe they could check one out if they're driving. Um, But we know that individual technology use pulls them away from social interaction. Just look around the dinner table. If you allow phones at the dinner table, Mm -hmm. Um, I would say keep it to a minimum. And not only because it's going to lead to more depression, but also it's going to limit social skills and it's going to pull them away from you guys being an influence in their life to other people being an influence in their life. And, you know, guys, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't mention a bit of a white elephant in the room and that is pornography. Um, And teens access to pornography um, is directly related to their access to screens and technology. And, you know, we've got to protect our kids from the, 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 the pox, if you will, of pornography. And a great way to do that is to limit their screen time, limit recreational use of the screens, don't allow screens in private areas uh, of the home. Uh, and you, you just can't be too careful uh, about protecting your kids from pornography. And that's a wrap for Adolescent Health Issues. We hope that something here has benefited each of our listeners. We'll be back with our medical trivia question of the day here on Dr. Doctor after the break. And we're back with Dr. Doctor and the answer to the adolescent trivia question. Yes. Not to say it's immature, Tom. It was a good question. <laughs> uh, you're probably right. <laughs> so how many adolescents are there in the world? 
1.2 billion with a B. What percent of the world population do they comprise? 16%. They're everywhere. So one topic we wanted to make sure we covered before the end of the show is sleep. How much sleep do adolescents need, Andrew? More than they get. <laughs> yes. Nine to 10 hours. Okay. Raise your hand if your adolescent is getting nine to 10 hours of sleep a day. I mean, that's at least six sleep cycles, a sleep cycle being about an hour and a half. That's probably also, why they're trying to make up for it on Saturday morning. I mean, it well, really should be balanced throughout the week. They are. And studies have demonstrated that schools test better the more after eight o'clock in the morning, their first class starts. The earlier before eight o'clock starts, the worse the kids do. The older adolescents get, the more they do better by starting later in the day. And some school systems have taken that to heart, but others haven't. So the number, I think it's been shown that the number of hours they need for sleep is just slightly more than the number of hours they need to spend in the shower. <laughs> <laughs> is that for boys and girls? Yes. Yes. So if you've ever thought of converting your home to a tankless hot water heater, you might want to do that before your kids reach adolescence. <laughs> Sounds like a little personal experience there, Chris. <laughs> paying, just paying the electric bill. Here's the dad. That's all. <laughs> Listeners, thanks for being with us for another episode of Dr. Doctor. We are the award-winning official radio program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association brought to you from the studios of Redeemer Radio on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Please share the good news of Dr. Doctor with a friend and invite them to listen on their favorite podcast app or at RedeemerRadio.com forward slash doctor. And be sure to rate and review our show so that new listeners can find us. And you need to send us your questions and give us topics. Otherwise, we'll do more shows like this one. Uh, so, so please be sure to tune in next week for your appointment with Dr. Doctor. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud. And Dr. Andrew Mullally, signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts or the Catholic Medical Association. Find our past episodes and keep up with the latest from Dr. Doctor by subscribing in your favorite podcast app and following us on Facebook. Get links to follow and subscribe or submit a question for our doctors by texting the word DOCTOR to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or visit RedeemerRadio.com slash doctor.